You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with the heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Lord God, we do thank you for your goodness to us. We ask for your help to understand your word well and that you would guide us in a life that is lived into these truths, that we don't just have a knowledge about them, but we have a knowledge of you. And together we praise you in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Last week we looked at Revelation 6 with the four horses of the apocalypse. The first four seals are open. Remember, these seals have to open in order for the consummation of salvation history to be disclosed, to be revealed. And so it's describing a process by which the revelation of the end is going to be uh, is going to be fully disclosed. And the first, I, the point made last week was that those four horses of the apocalypse of uh, death and famine and disease, they're running rampant now, and they have been running rampant since the time of Christ. They've been running rampant since the fall of humanity. And this is what we live with. And hopefully all of our vocational callings in some way is designed to mitigate against those four horses of the apocalypse. The fifth seal, when it's disclosed, is a picture of those saints who have gone before. For all the saints who from their labors rest to thee by faith before the world confess thy name, O Jesus, be forever blessed. Well, that's a picture of the saints under the altar praying, praying for the end to come. And the end is measured not in terms of conversions, but in terms of martyrdoms. That that will be the the full account of uh, signaling the end. And so you have, and then the sixth seal, the sixth seal is the end. And the point made last week was that there are seven descriptions of the end in the book of Revelation. So if, and so many have been taught that the book of Revelation is a linear chronological stream of events, most of which are out in the future for us. But what the book of Revelation really is, is a description of seven ends and a spiraling intensification of what is going to come at the consummation of the age. And those seven ends then, which, you know, the Western mind is just so linear and so chronological. It's so A to Z. That's how we think. But that's not how John is writing. John is writing with a singular message of faithful endurance to the end and a witness of a faithful presence in a world that is antithetical to the gospel and to the living God, creator and redeemer. And that's really his message. His message is that faithfulness to the end, a a resilient saint who loves the Lord and it is displayed in her or his life fully. So we come now to chapter 7 and the opening uh, of the... Well, let's read. It's italicized, uh, the first eight verses. I'll read it from there. Uh, This is from the NIV version. So it may be a bit different from your ESV version. After this, I saw four angels standing uh, at the four corners of the earth. 
holding back four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. What this is describing with these four mighty angels that are standing in wait, ready to unload their supersonic evil. Now, not like the four horses of the apocalypse, but this is the kind of consummation of the wrath of God coming at the end. But they're told, wait, do not blow on the land, on the earth, on the sea, or on the trees. Don't move yet until we have sealed up the 144,000. I heard a number of those who were to be sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel, from the tribe of Judah. And then it lists the 12 tribes. Uh, Joseph is listed separate from and along with Ephraim and Manasseh, which Joseph usually in the list of tribes stands for Ephraim and Manasseh. Just the two, I'm just commenting very briefly on the uh, differences in this list. Judah is listed, although it is the fourth tribe, it's listed first in part to underscore the militancy of this description. This really is a description of the army of the Lord. Uh, it takes after numbers and its listing. And in a way, the, this is what represents the power of God on earth, the witness of the church. Dan is not mentioned, partly because it's thought that Dan was such an idolatrous tribe that it, lo it lost ranking in the listing of the tribes. But 12 times 12, 144, squared by 1,000. And as we've already said, the numbers are symbolic. They're not literal. So the 12, like the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles, is a picture in of the total and comprehensive and completely perfect generation at the end. That everyone who is to be saved will be saved. And this will be perfect. 12 times 12, 144 times 1,000. That's saying in three or four different ways, symbolically, the perfection of this group of people. And this is where interpretation of Revelation has been uh, an issue that I think has gotten complex is because some have argued, well, this is ethnic Jews, these 12 tribes. But we've already, and, you know, I could spend some time now making a case that in the New Testament, the true Jew is the one who is a true child of Abraham and follows the living Lord Jesus, the Messiah. And that's emphasized already in the book of Revelation in a number of ways. Uh, that would be our class in itself if we were trying to make that case. Uh, so maybe accept that my interpretation of this uh, group of people 
is that it's the 12 tribes and the 12 apostles. It is Jew and Gentile. There is no Jew or Gentile. There is no free or bond. There is no uh, uh, male or female. All are one in Christ Jesus from Galatians chapter 3. Number one on your study sheet, if the revelation is taken out of the twilight zone, some pretty amazing things happen. It's no longer complicated religious calculus, but the compelling call to patient endurance and faithfulness by faithfulness intended by God. The Apostle John invents no new truth. There is nothing new in the book of Revelation that you can't find elsewhere in the New Testament and that isn't based on the truth of the Old Testament. The Apostle John invents no new truth. The truth is still the same. And this is kind of the, the compilation of this. God in Christ is reconciling the world to himself. Salvation by grace through faith and the atoning sacrifice of the cross of Christ is central to our faith. Evil charges forth, but it's not the supreme reality. Heaven and hell are real. Salvation and judgment are coming. Jesus is Lord. So number two, the last chapter ended with questions, who can stand? And if I go back to chapter six, on the ceiling, the very last verse of the chapter reads this way. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can withstand it? For the great day of wrath has come, and who can withstand it? And the answer to it is in chapter seven. The people that can survive that last generation, or in that last generation, the people who can survive are the people that are sealed. It's this 12 times 12, 144 times 1,000, they are sealed. Now, where does this language from sealing come? Uh, there's an image of this in the prophet Ezekiel where judgment is coming, the judgment of God is coming, and a man dressed in linen with a writing pad is told to go out and to mark each person that grieves over their faithlessness to God. And so that man dressed in linen, described in the book of Ezekiel, and mark it here, uh, goes out and he marks the people that are to be spared. It's thought that John is playing off of that off of that image in Ezekiel. The sealing is a language that is used ever since Genesis and circumcision and since the Passover. So sealing ties into the reality of being circumcised and us baptism and also in terms of the Passover marking out God's people sparing them. The celebration of the Passover spared the firstborn. And then it enters into the language in Ephesians where we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. Now, if we had more time, Ephesians chapter 1 would be a perfect passage of Scripture to read. In that chapter, believers are chosen, they're adopted, they're predestined, and it ends up by describing them as sealed by the Holy Spirit. It's all done to us. And there is nothing kind of said about us 
receiving this uh, on our own, on our own merit, on our own works. It's all what God has designed in his sovereign and predestined will to do. Now, some of you may struggle over that. Um, and that's, you know, a great divide in the Christian church between those who would emphasize free responsibility and those who would emphasize divine sovereignty. And uh, the whole idea of election, that before you were born, you were elected for salvation. That kind of runs against the grain of uh, people who feel that, well, hasn't God given us responsibility? Isn't there a place for deciding? Um, is this just kind of deterministic? Is this Allah-like, a kind of fatalism that you can't do anything apart from that? If you turn to the last point on my study sheet, number 17, truth intention, May I suggest to you a way of grasping that apparent kind of contradiction that is difficult to uh, embrace for some. Reading number from number 17, truth and tension. Like a suspension bridge under permanent tension, the truth is always in tension and the church is always suspended over a chasm of evil by cables of truth. We hold all these truths in positive tension. I am uh, there in my image, in my mind, which I could be developed further, is the Brooklyn Bridge, uh, one of our earliest uh, and most long-lasting suspension bridges. And it is built with uh, two uh, foundation towers, and those are sunk down into bedrock. And it's quite a story as to how those actually got established, those two uh, foundations. And then above it are these cables that hold the whole weight of the bridge moving against or uh, suspended upon those two foundations that are rooted in bedrock. And I, you know, I won't elaborate uh, more on that, but in the second paragraph, we believe this is what I feel is the paradoxical tensions of Christian faith. We believe in the total depravity of humankind and the evidence of God's image even in the vilest sinner. See, that's a paradox. We really believe in total depravity, but we also really believe that in each and every person, the image of God is reflected. We accept God's unconditional sovereign control and election of all people and affirm the freedom and responsibility of each person to respond to God. That is a paradox that I don't think I can resolve in my mind. It goes beyond my capability. I think it goes beyond all human rationality. Nevertheless, it is the most rational reality that God indeed is uh, sovereign over all. And within that sovereignty, there is the freedom of decision and response that has not been taken away. And I can't write a mathematical formula for that. But I live with that truth. We believe in the salvific efficacy of Christ's atoning sacrifice on the cross for all those who are called and the universal invitation of the gospel that whosoever will may come. 
We believe in the irresistible grace of God and the human freedom of choice to reject as well as to accept the gospel. We believe in the eternal security of the saints and in the struggle to remain faithful to the end. So when we speak of these 144,000 being uh, sealed and elected and defined, that's what I think we're talking about. I don't think any one of us who've really come to Jesus Christ would say we've done so on our own willpower or our own wisdom, that our decision is resting in um, how responsive we are to God. Those who come to God in Christ by his Holy Spirit, I think acknowledge that we'd never be here without him, without him drawing us, without him guiding us, without him illuminating our understanding, without him bringing conviction of sin into our life, without our uh, ability now because of his grace to embrace the, the meaning of Christ's sacrifice. The first stanza in Revelation chapter 7 ends with the description of uh, the tribe of Benjamin and it being sealed. In verse 9 of this chapter, which is your second part, the great multitude, after this I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Remember, we've said of the Lamb, it's the choice title for Jesus, the Messiah, in the book of Revelation. It occurs 28 times, 4 times 7, 4 being a symbolic number for completeness and wholeness, and 7 for perfection and, and, and completeness. 4 times 7, 28 times lamb is referenced and it is always the reminder that the salvation that is being celebrated here is through the atoning sacrifice of Christ on the cross and they were wearing white robes and they were holding palm branches in their hands and they cried out with a loud voice salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb and all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen. And the attributes that are now going to be expressed are, <clears throat> are seven, as you might expect. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And then one of the elders asked me, hey, hey, these in white robes, who are they? And where do they come from? And John answers, sir, you know. And he said, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. Now, here we could stop and spend some time in defining the tribulation. Uh, some of you were taught in a more dispensational orientation to the book of Revelation that after the rapture of the church, there'll be seven years of tribulation, probably divided in three and a half of relative peace, but three and a half of intensity that no one can endure, uh, at the end of which uh, Christ comes. And then Christ comes and he rules for a thousand years, uh, and at the end of which he sets up his uh, final kingdom 
and there's a final salvation, consummation of salvation, and a final judgment. What I believe John is saying here in terms of the Great Tribulation is that it started with Jesus. And we have been in tribulation ever since. It started with the coming of Christ. And Satan has been bound. He cannot deceive the nations. His authority has been limited. Uh, and the church has been allowed to evangelize and to fulfill its great commission and its great commandment to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded, and to love our neighbor as ourselves and to love God and our neighbor. And these two, the great commission, the great commandment, the church has been freed up to do and Satan cannot, Satan can bother and Satan can interfere and Satan can deceive, but Satan is yet bound and does not have the kind of control that uh, that Satan would desire. Uh, we'll get to the millennium, millennium in chapter 20, but it takes all the way to chapter 20 before you get there. This great tribulation is, I think, uh, encompassed in the four horses of the apocalypse. It's encompassed in the uh, the evil that runs rampant in the description of uh, the whole book of Revelation. So the great multitude are all the saints in all times that have come into the presence of God because of the salvation of Jesus Christ, both before Christ and after Christ, because everyone is saved on the basis of Christ, A.D. and B.C., B.C. and A.D. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger. You see, this is a description like you've had in the, the, uh, the sixth seal of a final judgment. You have this description of heaven now. Uh, they will never hunger. They will never be thirsty. The sun will not bear down on them, nor any scorching heat for the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. You could end the book of Revelation there at the end of chapter 7. That does not do any more than what will be done in chapter 21 when the New Jerusalem is described. It gives more description at the end. But you've had the whole thing expressed. But we're not at the end yet. And so it's the end that gets compounded in multiple ends. And it is a description of heaven, the presence of God, compounded in multiple descriptions of heaven. So it's like, think of this uh, passage as like two stanzas of a hymn. You've got the 144,000 description as stanza one. And then you've got the great multitude description as stanza two. And these are in sync. These correspond that heaven and earth. Earth is the testimony of the 144,000. And don't worry about them because they'll be sealed. They are kept by Christ. They are subject to the wrath of man, but they are not subject to the wrath of God. And they will be sustained. And the great multitude are those who have gone before. They have weathered the great tribulation. They have weathered this time of wrath of man that has extended from the time of Christ to the present.
Do I dare open it up for questions? I think I've pretty much covered what I want to cover. And uh, so what questions do you have on this description? Tom? So right now the way you see it is Christ came, the tribulation or whatever began then, and then Christ comes in the future, right? Mm -hmm. So those, in a way, are historically linear. But then this description in between is not linear specific. Well, history, I think, as understood, is linear. But the way John, in his poetic praying imagination, describes it, he keeps describing this cycle of events that are taking place. So this from from the time of Christ to his second coming gets described in multiple ways. Um, he's retelling that story, that, that sequence of events, uh, not once, but really seven times. And he's going to go back. I mean, Re Revelation 12 is really a description of Christmas. Revelation 13 of Easter. I mean, he, he's going to keep weaving that whole gospel narrative time and time again through this book. He's writing, in some sense, in code um, to a persecuted church. Um, uh, probably the Romans didn't, weren't able to uh, understand this from head to tail, but the, the church could, especially because they were steeped in the Old Testament. And so, like, uh, the marking of the 144,000, the sealing, these believers would go back to Ezekiel and to what the prophet Ezekiel said. Follow up on that? Or did I respond? Yeah, I'm the point that it seems like sort of the bedrock historical points are coming of Christ first time and coming second time. Right. Agreed completely. Yeah. Is your opinion in the majority or minority? So should we vote? <laughs> um, yeah, uh, th that's an interesting question uh, because obviously I, I kind of feel my point of view in terms of New Testament studies today is uh, a majority perspective. But uh, in the American church in particular, uh, it may not be a majority point of view, especially those who have been uh, in the whole Dallas Theological Seminary and the dispensational tradition of the Bible Church, and also the whole Left Behind, the Tim LaHaye uh, Left Behind series, the David Jeremiah and Shadow Mountain, uh, all of those would be fairly dispensational and would not, uh, would not agree with the interpretation that, that I'm giving you. Uh, and yeah, uh, but if you were looking at the um, hermeneutical understanding and biblical interpretation from Trinity Theological Seminary, Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary, Fuller Theological Seminary, Beeson Divinity School, um, they would all be in agreement with this point of view. So. Um, 
this would be really confusing if I use the analogy that's in my head right now, but it's like Fox versus CNBC, CNN, ABC, CBS. Um, you get my drift. Uh, I think the dispensational school is fairly uh, American, and it takes after J.N.D. Darby and the Plymouth Brethren understanding that kind of saw two tracks, taught Israel track and a church track. And the Israel track is a track of understanding that there is a completely different covenant for Israel than the covenant for the church. And you see, I just can't read the New Testament with a true two-track theory. I see the whole impetus of the Apostle Paul is bringing Jew and Gentile alike together. Um, if you take Romans 9 and 11 and the special place that Paul carves out for Jews through which the Messiah has come and where he says, I would like to be accursed and have my brethren come to Christ. When you take that into account, I think there's still an important place for our thoughtful evangelism of Jews to come to their Messiah. Uh, and I think that is important. But I don't think there's going to be a special time down the road where all of a sudden all the Jews begin to see that they really have had a Messiah right along. I think that time is now for the evangelism of the Jewish people. Good question. You said U.S. church, American church. What about worldwide church? Yeah, I don't see the global church is locked into this kind of dispensational. Um, so yeah, dispensational reading basically says that what's happening now in every point from Revelation 4 on is off in the future. Because the church is raptured after the letters to the seven churches. When John has his open door throne vision, that's uh, descriptive of the rapture taking place and the coming of Christ. So now we're in a book that doesn't really pertain to us, if you take a dispensational interpretation, except as describing the future scenario. And... Uh, I think it's it's an epistle that is actually talking to us about our resilience and our faithfulness uh, and being salt and light in a hostile environment. I think that's all being said to us now. That's the case I'm making. Yes? So when do you get the wrath of God and when do you get the wrath of God? Yeah. Well, I mean, and that's... Uh, that's the question with this 144,000 that are sealed and protected, but still vulnerable to the wrath of man. The ultimate wrath, the second death, um, as, uh, as Revelation in Corinthians speaks of it, they are saved and spared and protected from that. But they are still subject to the wrath of man, as is the great multitude that's come out of the great tribulation. Uh, so while the wrath of Satan is checked, so it is not unlimited there. Uh, yet yet the Christians are persecuted. Uh, some of you may get Voice of Martyrs, the magazine. I recommend all of you getting it. Uh, 
it goes on our coffee table and uh, just this morning I was passing our coffee table with uh, the latest issue which is of a Nigerian woman who uh, was badly burned uh, in her being persecuted and I thought to myself you know I don't even want to be reminded of that and yet uh, there's so many sisters and brothers in Christ as we are reminded here at the Advent fairly regularly who live in very dangerous settings. You know, our friends in, um, in Joss and in Nigeria that are really subject to fierce persecution. Um, and they have a different attitude toward life and death and life than we do because they're living so close to um, that reality and in that reality. But they're part of the 144,000 and will be part of the great multitude. Um, Well, they're, they're in harmony with one another. The 144,000 is still on earth. And the great multitude is in the presence of God before the Lamb. And so they are the, the saints who are on earth yet and the saints who are with God in Christ. They've passed over. They've come out of the great tribulation. Uh, so technically, you and I are in the great tribulation. Now, one of the thoughts with that is you shouldn't be so surprised by evil. Uh, we shouldn't be so surprised by evil. We should have a more robust understanding of how we live in the midst of evil. Yes? So are we sealed already? You're already sealed. Um, and if there was any question of that, read Ephesians 1, the first half. Um, which uh, uh, Paul just, I mean, it's, uh, it's only two sentences, Ephesians 1, but he just, he just throws everything he possibly can into the description of God keeping us. And, you know, Hebrews 6 is the opposite. Hebrews 6 scares you, like uh, you could really be losing your faith and losing your relationship with Christ if you read Hebrews 6. But I think you read Hebrews 1, uh, I, I'm sorry, you read Ephesians 1, and as John Calvin says, this is written to Christians that are kind of hanging by a thread because they are being so persecuted. And Paul wants them to understand that they are being kept. And they are kept by the power of God. And so he writes to people who are really living the faith and living it into persecution. And God is, as Paul is emphasizing, God's keeping you. God has sealed you. He's adopted you. He's predestined you. He's chosen you before all time. He's sealed you by his Holy Spirit. You read Hebrews 6, and he's writing to lackadaisical, casual, second-generation Christians who are losing interest in Christ. And he's wanting them to understand that really everything's at stake here. Uh, don't re-crucify Christ. Don't damn what you have accepted as your salvation. So he's intense. But then he says at the end of that, I think better of you than that. So he pulls back from that. But 
I do think that, you know, so many of our denominations have divided along polarizing truths. So Arminian versus Calvinistic. And we kind of argue those two. I think it's important for us to see these truths in tension. That God indeed is sovereign and his electing grace is powerful. And within that, in a mystery, I have a responsibility to decide to come to God. And when I come to God, then I understand that my coming was all of God. And it's that kind of reality. Well, I preach in 10 minutes or so in the second 11 o'clock service. I'm always amazed that we do that here at the Advent. It'd be fine if I was preaching on Revelation 7. <laughs> but I'm preaching on Luke 11. Uh, let's pray. Lord God, thanks for gathering us together around your word in the name of Christ, to the glory of God the Father and in the Spirit. Help us to live into the faith that you have called us to, that you have given to us. Thank you, Lord Jesus. In Christ's name, amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.